Welcome to the Dr. Funk Podcast. On this week's episode, part one of the doc talking to NPG sax player Adrian Crutchfield about getting discovered by Prince, his favorite memories with the NPG, and how he found out about Prince passing. We also discuss Hannah Welton's new song, Cat Graham, and President Obama singing Purple Rain. And now, when he needs trombone, his dog is handy, but when he wants sax, he calls candy. Dr. Funkenberry. Uh, thank you so much for the wonderful intro as usual. Chris, what's going on, everyone? What's up, man? Welcome to the Dr. Funk Podcast. Oh, man. I can't wait. We gotta, we, we're not going to take too long with the news because, man, we got to get to Adrian. Uh, another, we have another, another band member from the NPG. Adrian Crutchfield, who was with him for the past four years was recording with him in february of this year yeah oh man it's gonna be a great two-part episode yes loving it all right so let's get get to some news what i'm hearing is um someone sent me a, regarding the record store day release of sexy mf um it's supposed to be a seven inch picture disc but they're also saying 12 inch picture disc I think it's seven inch because that was the original one that was released back in the day of sexy mf someone sent me something um message that because they ordered it through a record store that the release has been canceled oh so no. we're just keeping our eyes on that um it may be you know we'll know hopefully i'm crossing my fingers here that it was canceled no that it doesn't get canceled Man, those record store day lines, and especially on Black Friday, because it's a Black Friday edition. Oh, and never mind. I don't know if I, if I like that. <laughs> but it's that. cool. I don't know if people have seen the, I, you posted a picture of it, didn't mm-hmm. you, Doc? It's uh, it's the symbol. It's right. a, That's, an, a vinyl record in the shape of the symbol. Are you kidding me? And they, Just to have up, that'd be cool. They had that out before. I think this is limited to 5,000 copies or 50,000. Still pretty limited. Just afraid you're going to have to find it on eBay instead of the record store because yeah. those lines and then it isn't like a limit of stuff. They're limited in how many of one item they can purchase, but they're not limited to everything. And then these people, they uh, will buy a bunch of stuff, may not be the biggest Prince fan, and you see it on eBay. And, right. And well, they buy yeah. it for 20, 25 bucks and you're paying quadruple that amount. And they're investments. So, yeah. There's that. We're going to keep an eye on that. You guys, Cabot, I haven't gotten an official word on it, but someone sent me a message that said all the canceled stuff, but they were one of the ones that originally ordered it. And Hannah Welton was on Seth Myers. Seth yeah. Myers. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> week, Sit, sitting in with the band. Four days, and she was promoting her new project with uh, – her new band with Josh Welton, her husband. Yeah. Counterculture. Yeah. Pretty cool. And the new single woman's intuition, which is on iTunes right now. Right. Pick it up, slam it. I'm going to download it right now. (laughs) Don't mind me. (laughs) There you go. I thought you already had it downloaded. Oh yeah. Download it again. I'm going to download it again. There you go. So you have that. And then you add with, and they did a with Hannah being on a Seth Meyers show late night with Seth Meyers. They kind of did a Prince joke while she was there, kind of like Obama handing out candy to trick or treaters or someone dressed as Prince. And there was Obama singing Purple Rain. And then the kid was like, yeah, thanks. Obama was really dressed like purple pantsuit Hillary Clinton. <laughs> oh, Lord. And I, I can and, see the resemblance, you know. 
right. I know Hannah really wanted to kind of do like a rim shot, I'm sure. <laughs> Sound. But we have that going on. And then another release that is going on is going to be Cat Graham has a new album coming out in February. And she said there's some tracks produced by Prince that they're working with in, uh, you know, a couple years ago. So that's going to be pretty awesome. And we've been in contact via Twitter. You know, she wants to talk. Maybe we can get her on the show, talk about working with him and some things that he helped her on. And then another thing, another artist I was talking about helped and guiding was Alicia Keys, you know, who's a judge on The Voice right now. And just it's interesting her her speaking of stuff, just like her experiences when she got to play Paisley Park very early in her career, you know, and just experiencing him and what he taught her. Seems uh, Prince has taught a lot of females and um, protégés what to do and you know, experiences. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. You know? It's kind of interesting because we were there in 2000 at Paisley Park at the celebration when she to performed, when she was brand new, spanking. I think she had the number one album like that week. Like she mm -hmm. was that new and it just hit hard. And we got so lucky to see Alicia Keys when she was brand new and Fallen was just hitting the charts. Pretty and cool. She did the cover, How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore, which Ugh. they had to talk for him to approve it because even though you don't need clearance, you got to get clearance from him. And he's like, You play Paisley. Yeah. We'll be good. And during How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore, uh, she calls him. You actually hear, Hello. And then she, you hear his voice and then she clicks on him. Really? So oh that, was, that was craziness. Well, we have a male protege this time from the MPG Horns, Adrian Crushfield. We're going to be right back with him. Much love to y'all. Stay tuned. This is going to be such a great two-part episode. Here we go. And here we are with our very special guest, Adrian Crutchfield of the MPG Horns. Woo! What's up, yeah. Adrian? Welcome. Oh, man. Thanks for having me. How you been, man? I'm hanging, you know, surviving. I'm glad the last time that I saw Adrian was playing with CeeLo instead of the time before I saw him. But Adrian's been a busy cat, man. You've been in the studio with Bootsy Collins and a few others, right? Yeah, man. You know, you got to stay moving. You never get comfortable, man. Always got to stay moving. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, so. to just get this out of the way, um, 421... Where were you yeah. when you uh, heard everything? Man, April 21st, I was in Florida mm -hmm. at the uh, Seabreeze Jazz Festival. And uh, I was there with, ironically, I was there with Marcus Anderson, and I, we were waiting for BK Jackson to mm -hmm. arrive. Uh, BK, Marcus was on the festival. And BK and I had a show at Margaritaville, which is like an after party kind of thing that we were doing. So it was cool because we were all going to be together. Um, we yeah, had no way of knowing. Together. Yeah, we, we had no way of knowing what was going to happen that day or what we were going to find out. Um, as a matter of fact, we had a sound check that morning mm -hmm. and I got to hang out with Marcus that morning. And we were just kind of, you know, joking around and having a good time and. I went back to the the condo at the beach, and um, I started getting all kinds of phone calls. And, uh, I started getting uh, contacted by the media, and 
and different and then and of course you know family members and people just you know checking on me and i didn't know what was going on and uh and then somebody came up to my room and said turn the tv on and you know i turned it on and uh we saw you know paisley park and immediately i thought maybe uh maybe there was a fan who had done some kind of a suicide or something on the lawn i don't know anything like that it never really crossed my mind that it could have been prince and so uh when they finally started saying that it may have been him uh i called down to marcus's room and uh and then i called bk bk was actually on the road driving in and so i called him to check on him and see what he knew and uh in the meantime, it was just really hard to make any phone calls because our phones were all basically spazzing out with all the different emails and texts and phone calls we were getting from the media. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I went down to Marcus's room and we kind of watched everything kind of play out uh, together. Uh, and it was it was really hard. Uh, it was really hard to swallow, hard to accept. But uh, at least you know we were there with one another. You know, we had, there were people around us, of course. We had all our friends and colleagues and musicians around us, but it's nothing like having somebody there who actually can relate because they have a similar relationship with with Prince, you know. So that was cool that we just so happened to be in the same place. Uh, So that was good. That was just craziness that day, so I can fully understand. And not probably believing it at first, like people blowing it up. You're like, what? No. Yeah, I I I totally was like, this is not right. This is this is a joke, or you know, I thought maybe he's got some kind of plan for some kind of promotional thing. I don't know, <laughs> you know. Yeah, which I, isn't I just, too far like stretch because like he something. did something in the nineties. Yeah, right. We're not going to get into that. Yeah, he 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 could have. He was capable of planning really elaborate things like that. So. Yeah, I, I didn't want to believe it. Absolutely, we're with you on that. Yeah. it still doesn't seem real, you know. You know, I, huh. when we did the uh, when we did the tribute in Minneapolis, yeah, everybody there. I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but I know ha- at least half of us were waiting for him to like walk in and <laughs> right. be like, mm-hmm. "I got you." Yeah, you know? right. would have been nice. <laughs> yeah. Um. I appreciate you talking with us. Like, you know, I talked to you at CeeLo and you said, you know, you definitely do it. Um, Because I know you haven't really been talking about it at all. So I appreciate you coming here and being able to express everything. Now, um, one of my first questions before we get into um, other things like Black is a New Black, how were you discovered to be part of the MPG Horns? You became Marcus yourself in general, though. Um, I'm I'm still not really clear on how we were discovered. We, <laughs> that sounds like Prince too. <laughs> yeah, um, he never really never really told us. Um, I did have, you know, uh, prior relationships with people in the camp, like uh, Shelby. Shelby Johnson is like family to me. We toured with Anthony Hamilton together some years back, oh, cool. and right. we've always been really close. Um, Cassandra O'Neill has always been like a sister to me as well. Uh, she was a big part of the Charlotte music community here. Right. And so 
I had known them for years. And uh, Marcus and I were a part of the opening band for Prince when he came to Charlotte uh, in 2011. Right. We were with Anthony Hamilton. And, uh, you know, we were doing our dancing and everything on that show. And, I mean, I I have to believe that he he saw some of that and uh, maybe was impressed by it. But um, what I can tell you is that um, he originally brought us in to help promote Andy Allo. That was our yeah. job. We oh, we yeah. came in as the horn section for Andy Allo. Yeah, okay. And uh, he wanted us to, Marcus and I in particular, to help build a horn section, like a dancing horn section mm-hmm. that could, you know, have the look and the, the funk of, yeah. you know, that kind of era. Um, and so Marcus, I think Marcus got the call first. And he called me. Because we, Marcus and I have always been, you know, basically that whole side of the horn section, we've all been really tight for a long time, since before the Prince days. So Marcus and I spent the last seven years or so backing each other up. So if he couldn't do a gig, I did it. And if I couldn't do a gig, he did it. Still. still Just like with CeeLo. That's how we saw you. It's exactly what the situation is with CeeLo. We've been doing stuff like that for about seven years. Mm-hmm. Where we hopscotch on shows, and really, it's a matter of most horn players are very competitive, and we decided we just didn't want to do that. We were the first day we met, we were competitive, huh. but uh, we immediately discovered that we just had so much in common, and we just got along so well um, that you know we we'd be better off working together. So, right. uh, Marcus called me and said. Uh, I need to talk to you. And the next time, you know, we were in a practice space at the this place here called the Playroom Academy, which is uh, or it's actually not the academy, the Playroom, which is like uh, like equivalent to SIR in LA, the, the rehearsal studio, yeah. rehearsal space. Uh, we were at the Playroom and we were rehearsing, practicing for some other shows. And uh, he took me off to the side and said, "Hey, man, um, I got a phone call." Uh, and I can't really tell you what it's about yet, but I may need you to uh, sub out some of these jazz festivals for me and go in my place. And, of course, I was like, you know, no problem. I'll, you know, of course, I'll do it. And then, like, the next day, I was leaving. I went to Florida, uh, which that's another th- – wow. I just had another realization. Huh. Uh, the first call I got about Prince, I was in Florida, and then – and when I, when I found out he died, I was in Florida. That's crazy. Um, hmm. But I was in Florida doing a show. Uh, and the next day after talking to Marcus, and um, Marcus had called me that day while I was in Florida and said, you know, I'm not supposed to say anything, but I may be doing this project where Prince is going to be the producer. So I'm trying to get this Prince gig. So I can't really talk about it because I don't want to say anything until it actually happens. But I may need you to come in and fill in for me. Right. So I said, cool, you know. And then the next day, of course, you know, that's when I get the call that Prince wants me to help put together the horn section for Andy Allo. Huh. And uh, I have to call Marcus back and say, hey, man, you know, I got some good news and some bad news. And he's like, what's up? And I was like, I can't sub for you anymore for any of those gigs you're talking about. And he's <laughs> like, what? Why not, man? I need, huh. I really need you to help me. And I was like, well, I can't, you know. I can't do those gigs anymore for you because 
I'm going to be working for Prince. And he's like, I don't understand. <laughs> I was like, dude, awful. we're both going to be working on the same gig. Yeah. <laughs> and so, which was really crazy. They wanted us, Marcus and I, to build a horn section, and we did, um, which consisted of mostly Carolina boys that we knew and we grew up with and who we knew could do what we call hoofing, which is dancing, you know, and playing at the same time. Because when you try to dance and play a horn, you usually breathe very heavy, which is the hoof, <sighs> you know, that whole thing. How, so I don't know how you guys are able to do that. That's right. crazy. I could barely watch you guys without cardio, losing my man. breath. <laughs> it's, it's cardio. You know, mm-hmm. you look at great groups like Sam and Dave, you know, um, James Brown, FAMU, uh, Florida A&M University, yeah. Yeah. You know, groups like that. They do it all the time. So if they can do it, we can do it, you know. And one of the things we wanted to do to set ourselves apart from other horn sections, and I think this is why Prince really appreciated us, is because if you look at any great horn section, Earth, Wind & Fire, Chicago, mm-hmm. you know, all of those groups, their horn sections dance, but only when they're not playing. Right. And, oh, yeah. and so I wanted to make a difference in that and say we're going to dance even when we're playing. And uh, so that was the challenge. And then we found out that we were in competition to get the gig Mm-hmm. with Andy Allo against uh, another horn section, which was led by Phil Lasseter. Right. Um, oh. and, and Phil had a great reputation for recording phenomenal horns on people's records. You know, we all looked up to him and admired him, you know, so, but we had never seen him live. And so we were already kind of intimidated. And then uh, I guess as the story goes, um, Andy chose our group, I guess, because we had the the look or what I don't know. But right. uh, eventually, Prince wanted the horn section again, and of <laughs> course, we kind of transitioned over to him, and he wanted a big horn section. So it became he couldn't decide between our section and Phil's section, so he brought in both sections and made a mm-hmm. stereo horn section, which is like eleven people, right. which was unprecedented, but. It's Prince. That's what he does. That's right. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of how we became the MPG Horns. Very cool. Now, yeah. I think the first time that I saw you was uh, Jimmy Kimmel Live. Doing, yeah. Uh, performing with Andy. Affair. Yeah. And, but you you also performed with uh, Andy beforehand, not only Rock and Roll Love Affair, but her little uh, thing beforehand. We did beforehand People Pleaser and... Uh, yeah. I can't remember what else. We did a bunch of songs. If I was king. On the inside. If yeah, I if was I was king. a king. That's right. Yeah. With Maceo and, and Trumpo and Shorty. Exactly. That's what I was wow. gonna talk about. How amazing was it? I mean, to play with Maceo and to play with Trombo. And that was your first time playing with both of them, correct? Yes. Um mm-hmm. Maceo being from North Carolina, he is a big influence on us. Mm-hmm. Uh well for me as a sax player, he's a big influence. Um, I'm hearing that echo again. That's going slow, but <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Um, you know, me being a sax player, he's always been a big influence on me, uh, and I always wanted to play with James Brown. So, um, and ironically, I always wanted to be an iconic sideman, uh, like a, an iconic sax, uh, as Maceo was. Uh, and I had this conversation with Prince once where I said, you know, I've always wanted to be the Maceo, you're James Brown. 
Uh-huh. Right. And uh, that's a, what I ended up being, which was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but playing with Maceo the first time was great. And it was ironic and really funny because, you know, when we recorded the video for People Pleaser, the audio for that video is actually Maceo Parker. Hmm. Uh, but really? if you look at the video, oh. the solo the first time is me, and mm-hmm. the second time is Marcus. Um, so there was a lot of uh, arguing going on on YouTube. Like if you go back and look at the YouTube clips of that video, people mm-hmm. are like, "That's Maceo Parker," and then other people are like, "No, that's Adrian playing." And it's like it's true both ways, I guess, <laughs> because in the video <laughs> it's me, but the audio is all Maceo. And so he got a pretty good laugh out of that. He thought it was hilarious. Uh, but he was very supportive. And then uh, Troy, uh, Trumbo and Shorty, uh, we had a mutual connection. He He's from New Orleans. Mm-hmm. He plays a lot with uh, my cousin, who's a jazz trumpeter in New Orleans, named Ashlyn Parker. And so mm-hmm. uh, when I met Troy, the first thing I did was go to him and tell him the connection. I said, hey, you, you do a lot of work with my cousin Ashlyn. And we Troy and I hit it off, and we've been – you know, very close friends ever since that whole thing. Right. Um, and I've even done some touring subbing for BK Jackson, who's now playing with Trombone Shorty. Uh, right. I've toured with Trombone Shorty uh, a couple times in, in place of BK. Oh, very That's cool. cool. Yeah. Now, yeah. <clears throat> the Rock and Roll Love Affair performance on Kimmel with you guys. Yeah. Afterwards, sorry, Chris. No, I don't okay. want to hurt your feelings. But afterwards, they went to Princess, one of Prince's favorite places to play in L.A., the Sayers Club, to do an Sayers after Club. show afterwards. Now, keep in mind how big the horn section was at the time. It wasn't just BK and Marcus and Adrian. Right. Yeah, um, it was yeah. everybody. And everybody in town was playing horn in that Say- section. The Sayers <laughs> Club is kind of the size of a large their stage it's kind of the size of a large kitchen table <laughs> so you have these right the horn players set up where, where are you gonna put them he puts them in the aisles from the stage so there they are with with their notes with everything before you guys started having the ipad hookups you guys actually yeah. had your sheets yeah we had sheet music how how yeah. was that that was crazy experience of you know, here it is. You're you're playing with Prince in L.A. You're not thinking, okay, we're gonna be. I'm gonna be playing in an aisle. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, we did a lot more uh, intimate club settings than we did arenas mm-hmm. in our tenure with Prince. Hmm. And um, first of all, the Sayers Club was tiny. It's one of my mm-hmm. favorite places in L.A. Yeah. But it's tiny. And for someone of that caliber, you got to understand that as a band, we took up more real estate than the audience did. Um, yeah. <laughs> which <laughs> was really crazy. But you got also, you got to understand the genius behind that and in, in, in that it makes it a modern day juke joint. It gives mm-hmm. it that, that feel and that, mm-hmm. that experience that you're not going to get with someone of that caliber very often. I mean, how many people can say that they were like within hand's reach of a, a musical icon like that? Right. You know, with, you know, no no velvet rope, no, you know, nope. he was right there in your face. Yep. 
sweating with you, you know, like in this hot box of a mm. venue, you know. And was... so I think that was really cool. But as far as the horns go, what it did for us, uh, Marcus and I, uh, we actually had our iPads at that time. Mm. Marcus, BK, and I were always the forerunners on a lot of things. So the other ones um, didn't have it because I saw them looking over sometimes. What's yeah, next? What's next? Yeah, we, um, number one, we were big advocates in memorizing the music um, mm. because, you know, that's the other thing about Prince. He never does a song the same way twice. Right. So the music, the sheet music was just a reference. It's not, it's not a map. Mm-hmm. It's just a reference. Right. And, uh, we were always advocate, and plus, you know, we like to dance. We don't have enough space to dance and read music at the same time, most mm. of the time. So we were always really big advocates of memorizing the music. And if we couldn't memorize the music, at least have the references ready to look at. Um, and with that being said, having to travel around with these big, huge suitcases full of music was mm-hmm. a headache. So Marcus and BK and I invested in iPads during our first real, like, big rehearsal month. Right, right before the Chicago shows. Right, welcome and, to Chicago, uh, yeah. And uh, we got the iPads, and uh, they uh, a lot of the guys didn't want to get, they didn't want to invest in iPads. Mm-hmm. You know, they said they would use them if Prince bought them. You know, but <laughs> of they weren't gonna, you know they weren't gonna, gonna go. buy iPads for themselves just mm-hmm. for this. Uh, and we got them, and that show at the Sayers Club was one of the times where. It proved that they needed iPads. And so, like, right mm. after that, everyone got iPads. <laughs> yeah. Everyone went and bought them. Now, keep, and, keep in uh, mind, they did yeah. two shows of the Sayers. They did the first night after Kimmel. Yeah. And they did Dark, which was amazing. Oh, man. With the horns. Like, that was the first time oh, I heard him play that live. Damn. And Dark, then, yeah. So, yeah. I was already tucked into bed that night, I think, when you got into dark. Sorry, man. No, it's all good. <laughs> oh. Man, that was that was a great great performance of dark. Amazing. And then yeah. two nights later, they play again. You know, they didn't do extra lovable at that time. A few years later I'd see that, but here's this cat sitting next to me, VIP wearing Prince's boot and just sitting against the wall and they're just doing a show. And then he starts going into the dance electric, then whispers something to Andy who's playing like, yeah, get Andre, give him the bass. And then Andre's it's Andre Simone, basically standing Andre Simone. Yeah. Wow. And here it is. <laughs> All of a sudden, Andy just calls him up hands on the bass and they start going into dance electric. Now it's an Andre Simone, huh? And wow. yeah, keep in mind, look, I love LA. It's my hometown. But you had Robert Pattinson with Kristen Stewart. You had all these celebrity people. And I don't know how much they appreciated like the Minneapolis sound and whatnot and history being made that night. Oh, nobody knew. Them two were playing that jam. Yeah. You know? Right. So I don't know how it was for you. I don't know if you know heard the whole backstory with Andre, but that that performance of Dance Electric was just Oh, that was a, that was a moment. That was a moment in history. Now, yeah. was that rehearsed at all, or was that totally nope. impromptu? Nope. nope. Listen, he saw Andre I, show up and do it, huh? I'm a huge Prince fan for, before I'm a musician, uh-huh. you know. Um, so to know the history of, you know, Minneapolis, the Minneapolis sound, and who Andre Simone is, and his relationship with Prince, uh-huh. and everything that they went through and whatnot, I mean, I don't know all of that stuff, but... 
Mm-hmm. I do know that they have they have a they they were like best friends, you know. This yeah. is this is like the uh how do I explain it? This is the the teller to to Prince's pen. This is the yeah. this is the Jerry to Prince's Tom, you know? Right. And so we had no idea that Andre Simone was going to be there. Mm-hmm. But when when I realized he was there and he was getting on stage, I was like is this really happening? Yeah. You know? Uh, and you know, the rest of the guys, they, they didn't really understand the significance of it, but I was just like, Oh my God, that's Andre Simone. We're here. And Prince has just invited Andre Simone on stage. Mm -hmm. That hasn't happened in how long? 30 years. Yeah. So it was a big moment in history. Right. Which is cool. It was crazy. Cause I, you know, I'm sitting in there. I saw Chaja Cheville. I saw Van Jones and then here comes Andre wearing it, wearing his hat. And first time Prince has seen him in forever, and Prince just laughs and gives him a hug. That's yeah, so cool. Just it was nuts seeing that moment, and then just to see him later on, you know, he didn't go to Andre. Hey, you want to play later? Just like he was like, it was the first time I met Hannah was Hannah Welton two days before, and he's asking her if she wants to play. He goes up to her just in making drums. She's like, "What song?" And he's like, "Stratus." I think. All Hannah knew at the time was Stratus and Rock and Roll Love Affair. Um, yeah, yeah. But at least she got a little bit of warning. You're going to kick it off, and then John Blackwell is going to take over for you. Andre's just sitting against the wall in VIP, but that's that's how Prince is. You're coming yeah. to my show, and I'm making you work you for your ticket. Hannah, did you catch Hannah on the uh, on the Late Show? Seth Meyers, yep. Been watching yeah. it, yep. Definitely. That's pretty killing. Doing her thing. She's now, doing what was... Because you you played a lot of intimate shows and a lot of other shows, what were some of your most memorable moments playing with them, Montreux or, you know? Um. Yes, I mean every every moment of it was memorable for me. I can't really pick a single moment hmm. because all True. of it was just amazing. And I, I don't really know how to explain it, but like I, I just can't I can't really place a specific time that stands out uh, okay. to me. It was just all so surreal. Like I still still sometimes have to, you know, if you can, I don't know if you can see it, but back there I have I have a wall with all my badges and hmm. stuff from every you know tour or something we did with his picture. Wow. Because I still have to, I still have to go and look at that sometimes and be like, did that really happen? Right. Like, did I really spend the last four years playing for Prince? Like, you know, I still have to do that yeah. uh, because it was all so surreal to me. So I, I don't really know if I can think. I mean, you probably know of a moment better than me. You probably know of a moment <laughs> for me better than I do because for me it was all it was all a haze. Sayers, Montreux, Dakota Jazz Club, those shows. Oh, man. I'll tell you, okay, so you said Dakota. The mm. time when we played the Dakota and the this it was it was only the six piece horn section only. on one only. mic. Only. Instead <laughs> only. of the thirteen extended <laughs> Instead version. Instead of the eleven, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Were you there for that? Mm. He wanted me there. Uh it was a little too cold. That's yeah, it saying. was it was cold. <laughs> but we did that show. Sayers Club is about Two inches smaller than the stage, the Dakota. Wow. And 
So we had this space horn section. And we only had one mic on a stage. And that was pretty Right. That's a good moment. Now, let's talk about, because you recorded something. You recorded a lot of things with them, including uh, Rough Enough, which we're going to talk about now. And we'll talk about Black as a New Black a little bit later. But Rough Enough, how did that all come to be? Because I know there was something beforehand called the MPGQ, right? Yes. Yes. So uh, during the time, the era of new power generation horns, once that started, Prince went into a completely creative explosion of bands. Hmm. And so Third Eye Girls was formed. And then in the midst of Third Eye Girls, he formed... Uh, MPGQ because right. Third Eye Girl was mainly a focus on rock and roll. You know, it was, in my opinion, it was his homage to Jimi Hendrix. Hmm. Uh, you know, in the wild, untamable character of, of that. Um, because they were a rock band. I mean, they played everything. But when right. you look at the guts and you know the the inner core of what that was, it was rock and roll. It was the definition of rock and roll. Absolutely, um, that's for sure. Which was beautiful. Um, but he still wanted to create in other realms too. And so, you know, a lot of us were at that time touring with Liv Warfield, mm-hmm. uh, playing soul music, and he wanted to play some jazz. You know, right? And he did. He he formed MPGQ, which Included um, Andrew Goucher and Marcus okay. Anderson and um, and uh, Xavier and those guys mm-hmm. and they recorded a lot. I don't even know how much they recorded, but they did a lot of stuff. And right. it was going to be a you know they were going to move on and do some things with that. I don't know what happened, but eventually it just kind of died down. You know, it's Prince. You know he. Once his attention goes to something, he focuses on that. Right. And then his attention moves to something else, he focuses on that. Yeah. And so I think the uh I think that the the third eye girl boom, you know, exploded and he just kind of focused completely on third eye girl at that time. So MPGQ didn't really uh take off. And hmm. then uh after the third eye girl boom, um that's when he started doing more fusion, not just like jazz, but like fusion, like uh, electronic fusion. And that's where Mono Neon and I came in. Um, right. He, I, I got to admit, uh, last year, um, I got kind of upset with Prince. Huh. <laughs> uh, I was upset with him because, you know, as a horn player, uh, there are certain pillars that we look at as goals. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you're thinking, you play with Prince. That's a goal. I mean, what, what else do you want to do? And that's true. But uh, he had promised us we were going to do Saturday Night Live. And, uh, you know, this was right around the time when the Third Eye Girl boom had happened. And so we, you know, we weren't playing as much. Third Eye Girl was playing most of the shows. And 
rightfully so. It's a three-piece band versus a 20-piece band. It's just easier right. to, to do a three-piece band for a one-off show, you know? Right. Um, so anyway, he had promised us that we were going to do Saturday Night Live. This would have and, been like 2013 going into 2014, right? Yes. Yeah. Because actually, uh, I had the pleasure to see NPGQ at Paisley Park in 2014, yeah. right before he dropped the albums uh, for Third Eye Girl, Plectrum Electrum, and his, right? Right, yes. right, right. So Plectrum Electrum and, and Gold Standard dropped, and all that stuff dropped. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, the MPG was still working, you know, doing things. Uh, but Third Eye Girl was the main group. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they were, they were, you know, getting a lot of attention. Uh, that was 2014, though. Yep. That was 2014. That. Yeah. Yep. And uh, uh, 2015 came around, and right at the top of, or right at the end of 2014, the top of 2015, he did Saturday Night Live mm-hmm. with Third Eye Girl. Um, but he had promised, not well, not promised, but he had told us, you know, we were going to do it. And so we were looking forward to that. And when sure. we didn't do it, I was I was just fed up, and I yeah. I was just like, uh oh, I I can't keep waiting to do these gigs, and then you got to imagine, you know, it's also an ego thing. I was a little I was I was a little egotistical, um, in the sense of you know every time they did something and we didn't, I got a million phone calls. You know, why aren't you there? You know, well, of course they want to see you. Right. They want you know the fans sometimes want to see us, and they'd yeah. be like, why aren't you there? Why aren't you doing it? Mm-hmm. And you know, we would just kind of say, "Hey, look, it's, we're not there. It's you know, that's it is what it is, you know." But for that one to, you know, we didn't even—I don't even think I knew that he was going to be on. I just turned it on and saw it. Oh no! <laughs> I was like, oh, you know. And of course, then I started getting calls. Why aren't you there? You know. And so I called Marcus, and I was like, "Man, I can't keep waiting around like this. You know, we got to do something." And. uh I called management and said, "Hey, is New Power Generation going to do anything this year or or this summer or is it going to be mostly a third eye girl thing?" And they said, "Yeah, we're going to we're going to focus on third eye girl for a little bit and push them and then MPG will pick back up, you know, at the end of the year." Uh-huh. So I said, "Cool." And I used that opportunity to go and uh spearhead the horn section for Bette Midler. Right. Um, in 2015. Yeah, and and I was aware that Prince can be very jealous, you know, mm-hmm. when it comes to his musicians, and so I was prepared to accept that I probably wouldn't be working for Prince anymore. Mm. Um, yeah, we talked so, about that at the yeah. when we saw Andy at the Avalon. We talked about that yeah. with you going to Bed Midler and just yeah. setting this up for it. Go ahead, man. I'm sorry. Oh yeah, go for it. Go no, for just just setting up because I know you're like. You know, you you took the gig with Bet, but you were telling him like, "Hey, you know, if you need yeah. me, let me know." You know, and you're like, "Oh no, yeah. we're good. We're gonna be focusing on Third Eye Girl." And yeah. then you're like, "Okay." And literally, wasn't it like right after you signed with Bet, you got a That's phone right. call? That's right. Um, they asked me. They asked me what day we were gonna start rehearsing or whatever, something like that. Right. And I don't think they did it on purpose, but it just happens. It always happens this way. The day that I showed up to start rehearsals with Bet, like the first day of rehearsals, mm. I was called to Paisley Park. <laughs> and, um, you know, I said no. You know, they said, well, when are you going to be available? And this was to do uh, – we had, we had just recorded 
we had just previously recorded Judith Hill. And so this was to do her music video and to do some touring for her. Right. And um, I said, no, you know, I was like, I can't, I've already obligated myself to Bette Midler for the summer because you mm -hmm. told me that we weren't going to do anything. And uh, once, once I said no, that's when I really thought, okay, yeah, I'm never going to hear from them again. <laughs> Blacklisted. You know, yeah. I'm going to be blacklisted in the purple world. And, uh, purple listed. <laughs> yeah, 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 purple listed. And uh -oh. and uh, I did the Bette Midler tour, and when we came to Minneapolis, we played the XL Center. I invited them. I invited Third Eye Girl and Prince. They didn't come. Uh, <laughs> Whoops. Bette, Bette, Bette is a huge Prince fan. She yeah. loves Prince. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, at first, I didn't, Bette and I didn't get along because um, she was always picking on me. And I learned later that when she picks on you, it's because she's more comfortable with you. Mm. Uh, so we got along eventually, especially once she realized I played for Prince. Um, right. But we finished the tour in Europe, and then I did some touring with Liv Warfield in mm. Europe to follow that up. And I, um, But while we were on tour in the United States, mm. uh, we were in New York, and Prince was doing the White House. Yep. And uh, I was going to bring that up. Go for it. I have a, I have a huge phobia of the White House, so I couldn't I wasn't going to do that. I had a gig with Bet anyway, so I couldn't do it. But I wasn't going to go to the White House. But mm. I did miss my horn section and I did mm. miss everybody. Right. And so I sure. wanted to go, you know, no disrespect to Bette Midler, but there's no funk in her show, man. I mean, it's mm -hmm. like <clears throat> it's, it's a very show. It's a show tunes kind of mm. show. It's a really great show, but it's all like. Vegas style show tunes. There's no nastiness in it, and that, I band. need that. Yeah. Right. And uh, I missed it. I just really missed Prince, and I missed my horn section. And so I flew down to DC because I knew they, I knew they were having a couple of after shows after the White House. Mm -hmm. And I flew down, and I, you know, I'm greeted, and I'm hanging with everybody. And Prince walks in, and uh, Marcus says, "Look what I found out in the street." You know, and, uh, Prince starts laughing and he shakes my hand and uh, he doesn't say it to me. He looks at Marcus and says, does he have his horn? You know, I'm standing right there. And he's just like, does he have his horn? Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I got my horn. And he's like, all right, well, you know, I'll call you up, you know. And he does the first the first set, but he never calls me up. And uh, <laughs> I'm standing on the side of the stage just waiting with my horn. And he comes off stage and he goes, what happened? Why didn't you come out? And I was like, you never called me on stage, so I didn't go. And he just starts laughing. He goes, my bad. And uh, <laughs> Whoops. And then for the second set, he calls me on stage, and we uh, we play, and we play with Stevie Wonder, and we have a great time. Yeah. And, uh, he gave me a couple of solos, uh, and I fell right back in. You know, it was like I didn't miss a step. It was right. just like everything was so natural. I knew all the songs by heart. You know, I knew all the arrangements. It just felt good to play some funk. You know, I had been yeah. playing straight music for for three months. So it just felt really good. And after we came off stage, he complimented me on my solos and, you know, oh, said, cool. you know, what have you been doing? And mm -hmm. I told him, I was like, you know, I'm with I'm with Bed Midler this summer. And he's like, oh, Lord, you lost all the funk. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah. I said, I said, yeah, man. I said, but I'm, I'm down. You know, whenever you need me, just call. And he said, no, he said, I'm already in trouble for stealing musicians from people. <laughs> and uh, 
I said, cool. So I just, you know, I assume that was his way of saying, good luck and, you know, go do your thing. I'm not going to call anymore. <laughs> and we went to Europe and then I got back from Europe and literally like a week after I got home, uh, they called me from Paisley Park and said, hey, can you come to Paisley and bring some of your electronics with you? Right. Interesting. And I said, sure. And I went and Mono was there. And uh, Mono Neon. I remember they had called me and asked me to contact Mono like a year prior for Judith Hill to, you know, to help mm-hmm. mold her, to build her band. And so I was the one who actually called Mono to, to join the Purple World. Um, right. Which was cool uh, to see him again, you know, or, or to actually finally meet him in person. Uh, I had seen him at at Nam. Uh, I had seen him at the Nam convention, but we, you know, we didn't really. He's a really shy person, so we didn't really hit it off. Um, but we started playing his fusion stuff with Donna and Kirk and Prince, and uh, and it was killing. I mean, it was amazing. It was unlike anything I'd ever done with. Prince, and then also uh, me being a sax player. A lot of times, people don't really support the idea of effects pedals with a sax player. They think it's too much. You know, most people are purists when it comes to saxophone. Um, and so, I've always been teased about using effects pedals. I have a huge, massive effects rig, right. and uh, um, I'd always been teased about it. So, I never really used it on much except for my own stuff. Right. Um, and he was Prince was the first one to really like embrace it, and uh, and then he he actually helped me to rebuild my pedal board, and he showed me some pedals to get, and oh, that's he cool. gave me a couple of pedals, and right, uh, and then he was really fascinated with the Iwi. Um, he called it the electric sax, hmm. uh, but he was really fascinated with it. Um, not not so much the vocoder. I mean, he liked the vocoder. But uh, I think what sets me out from most Iwi players is most Iwi guys use it specifically for vocoder. And I like to actually play it like a, a wind synthesizer. Right. Especially with pedals. There's so many possibilities. And so he really got a kick out of that. And I remember one day at Paisley, we were doing a Paisley Park After Dark. And I had created a sound that was like a distortion guitar, you know, and... Uh, and uh, I forgot what he calls it. I did the uh, the uh, the drop, the screaming drop thing. It's like an eagle cry or Aww. yeah, that whole thing. He <laughs> just wow. he thought he just he just lit up, and I noticed that he really liked it. And so I, I would save it, and I would do it every now and then. And every time I did it, he would just go crazy. And he he just thought that was the funniest thing in the world that I could emulate this guitar eagle the teardrop that's what's called teardrop or whatever or something uh and he just he would crack up and so uh eventually uh we did we did a bunch of paisley park after darks and then eventually mono and kirk and i went into the studio uh and we started with prince and we started pushing out these songs that were like i don't know how to explain it but it was like if you take the quality of 70s music and recording styles and the innovation of now and put that together, that's what was coming out. Right. 
And it was just unlike anything that you hear today, but it was so relevant. Right. And it was so catchy. And it had the boom, it had the bass and the vibration of the music today, but it had the quality and the and the consistency of 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 the music from back in the day. And one day, uh, Prince just he kind of pulled Mono and I into Studio A, and he sat us down, and he starts to explain to us, which he had never done before. I don't remember him ever explaining himself to us, you know. Um, but he starts to explain his game plan to us about this this project. Right. And I was just like, why is he explaining this to us? You know, and it was the first time I actually felt like a peer, you know, mm-hmm. uh, where before it was always he's the master. You know, we just follow as like he's the general of this army and we just follow his orders. So right. even if we agree with him, we'll follow. But this is the first time where I actually felt like a peer because he sat us down and he started to explain what he thought would be the best approach for promoting this record and how to go about. And he said, it. he was like, you know, we're not going to be playing arenas. We're going to be doing, you know, more intimate style settings. And this is going to be like the jazz fusion crowd. That's going to really dig this. Hmm. And, And he started to explain about how, today's music was just not it and he said he's like we can't even turn on the radio anymore to if we want to hear new music we have to create it and and more importantly the music that we create has to speak about the current situations right you know Mm. we're the news wow we're the news and and that's that's what he told us he's like we're the news we we give the people the information on what's going on in the world but it has to be in a format to where they want to listen to it. Right. It can't be depressing. It has to be something. It has to be enlightening. And uh, you know, just sitting down with him and hearing all these things, and he was really pumped. I mean, he was really, really inspired. I don't know where it came from. Maybe mono was like a new muse, you know, for him. But hmm. he was really, really inspired, and there was a fire in him that. It was almost like, uh, have you ever been a part of something where you just knew it was about to be a really much bigger thing than, than it was at the moment, but you could already see it? And it was a definite, you know, it's yeah. just like, this is huge. It's like discovering something that nobody's ever discovered before. It was huge. And seeing that in him gave us this huge confidence where we really, you know, we were just like, look, we just want to play music. Uh, you know, Mono and I, we were, we were just enjoying creating. Right. Uh, we had no idea what to expect. But then when he sat us down and started explaining those things to us, it became even more exciting and scary, you know, because it's like this could be a historic moment, you know, and uh, it was just beautiful. Um, so um, all that happened and we recorded probably seven or eight tunes. Right. Uh, and each of them was amazing. There were no like, there were no filler songs. You know, a lot of records have, you know, one or two or three really big hits, and then the rest of the songs are just to fill up the record. This was not like that. Every right. song was iconic. Every single song, um, including "Rough Enough." Huh. Um, just it's a funk. It's you know, and, and 
it, it went back for me, it went back to, you know, the feel of musicology, you know, right. The kind of, the kind of thing musicology was, you know? And so it was just really, really exciting. And, uh, we were, we were hyped, you know, we were like, we're about to put this record out. And, uh, and then he put, uh, another thing was he, he, he was really proud of this whole thing called peer to peer distribution. Um, that we've never really seen anybody else do on right. that level. I'm sure you guys are familiar with the peer to peer distribution thing that yeah, he started. That's how, yeah, Hit Run Phase Two is distributed. Yeah. Yeah. But that's how he was going to do for Rough Enough first. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hit and Run Phase Two. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Hit and Run Phase One was released under Warner Brothers. Uh, it was under Title. Oh. And then it they was did a distribution deal because title with Jay Z, I was uni- yeah. it was distributed through Universal Music Publishing. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, but it was under a major label. Hidden Run Phase One was under a label, right? Distributed by a major label. Yes. Distributed by a major label. Yes. With Hidden Run Phase Two, he didn't wa- he didn't want to give any labels any any uh, any reason to say that they had any kind of influence or any they they were entitled to anything right uh, so he did the peer-to-peer distribution thing which blew up i mean it was amazing the the hit and run phase two record was moving at a pace that you know we never could have expected it to move and it was all the songs that we had been recording with him as a horn section yeah for the last three and a half years yes um all the really killing stuff and there's still some stuff that w- didn't make the record Shades that he was Umber. holding on to. Um, but, you know, we used to all really get upset when Pletrum Electrum came out and then Gold <laughs> Standard came out and then Hidden Run Phase 1 came out and none of the really killing horn line stuff was on there. I mean, there was some mm-hmm. horn stuff on there, but none of the stuff that focused on horns. Right. And uh, I one day just kind of made a joke and said, you know, I think he's safe, you know, just like he did in the past where – you know, where Warner Brothers said, you have to do these records for us. And then he just said, okay, fine. He just released these records. Right. He just gave them what they wanted from the <laughs> from the vault, you know. Because he could, he could just put a record together like that if he needed to. Right. And uh, I kind of made a joke about it and said, I think he's just saving it to where he can release it on his own. Hmm. And sure enough, <laughs> sure enough that's kind of what too. he did. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> and he, was, know, he was sitting yeah. on that since October 2013 because he – Basically sent me the track yeah. list and Shades of Umber was on it and Boyfriend, which did not yeah. – those cuts did not make it. They didn't make it. But yeah, like because I went back after Hit and Run Phase 2 was released. I just did a search of my emails and there was an email about I'm like, we're saving this this funk. It'll have more of a full band full feel to it. Yeah. He didn't have a name for it at the time. But it's just mm-hmm. so interesting that literally all those tracks he mentioned – even Screwdriver being on Phase 2, which wasn't on the Plectrum Electrum record, interestingly enough, he mentioned all those tracks and, you know, it wasn't released for almost an, another two years. But yeah. there it was, and it was configured great, you know, and of course for you guys oh, yeah. to actually have stuff released that you recorded with him was kind of cool as well. Yeah, and and the, the other thing that's cool is that uh, he actually gave credit mm-hmm. um you know usually record it says 
all songs written and performed by Prince. Right. <laughs> you know, and so the horns actually credit not just for playing, but each of us got credit for arrangements that we did on those songs. That was huge. That's pretty right. cool. Um, and then uh, so Hit and Run is two came out. And uh, if you notice on title, rough enough, it says by Mono Neal. Right. Yeah. What's up it with that? It doesn't say by Neal. Nah. And I don't know how they're going to work it, but technically, with it being that way, the label has no claim to it. Right. You know, and I think that was his plan. Yeah. All along. Mm. Was to release songs either under Mono's name or under my name, or under under uh, Kirk's name, you right. know. And it was supposed or, to be a five-song EP. Eventually, what? I'm sorry. Yeah, I say, or eventually, maybe name the band and release the songs under the band. Right. Yeah. But yeah, it was going to be a five-song EP. Um, yeah. We recorded probably nine songs, mm-hmm. and his idea was basically to push the records through peer-to-peer distribution. Uh, and you know how he was doing the solo piano tour thing? Yeah. Well, we were going to eventually join as like the band for the after parties, because you know he's going to do an after party. He's Prince. Right. And right. After parties would be like the juke joint kind of jam. With the band, with Mono and Kirk and I, right, and uh, and maybe I think Donna was going to join, and, and maybe another keyboard player, um, but yeah. So the the idea was to get the record out, push it that way, and then while we're on the road pushing that record, we'd be creating the next record, yeah, and so on and so forth. And so we had recorded, I think nine. I think we were the goal was to record ten to twelve songs that way we'd be two records ahead of the the you know the jump right you know so we could release one and when we started working on the next one it would actually be the third record hmm. you know and uh i mean he was just a genius that way man he yeah. you know the way he thought about things everything was a chess game for him constantly recording constantly uh, recording and constantly thinking seven steps ahead exactly that doesn't yeah. sound like someone who thought their time was near. That's all I'm going to say Not about that one. Not at all. Not so, at all. You know, be definitely um, with that. It was supposed to be a five track EP released through title uh, rough enough, but we don't know if it was going to be credited to mono neon or something else, but it's just interesting how it all came to be and how much stuff is just that you record. And what we're going to do is and take a break right here to do episode two. But we're going to talk okay. about black as the new black and a few other right. things. Save that for part two, huh? All right. Uh, <laughs> Got to get the piece in. All right. <laughs> All right, Adrian, thank you so much. And guys, we're wrapping up for this week. Join us next week. Much love. Keep it funky. Thank you, Adrian, so much for joining us. Yes, sir. Yes, sir.